0: Today, we'll be speaking about the third and fourth steps of the first tetrad, or the first part of the practice, which is the part of the practice that is dealing with the Gaya, the body. In this step three, there will be the awareness or feeling of all bodies. Within the mind there will be the, the feeling and awareness of all bodies while breathing in and breathing out. In the first two steps, which were discussed yesterday, When we practice these steps, it will become evident that the breath conditions the body, that the breath, the different types of breath, have a very powerful and direct influence upon the body. We begin to become aware of this in steps one and two, even though this is not the direct object of our attention. This isn't what we are specifically trying to do, but nonetheless, we begin to become aware of it. In step three, which we're now discussing, we take that awareness that has already been developing and we we start to note upon this fact of conditioning the fact that the breath, the different kinds of breaths, condition the bodies. And so, in step three, we note this specific interrelationship, the influence of the breath upon the bodies. So this has been happening all along, but now we focus on and take this as our direct object of meditation. In doing so, we need to be clear that there are two kinds of body involved in this. There is, remember the word gaya, which we're translating to mean body, that gaya literally means group. So here we have two groups or bodies that are very important. The breath body, and the flesh body. We need to see that these are two different kinds of bodies, the breathing and the, the flesh physical body of muscles, gristle, sinews, blood, skin, and all that, but particularly the flesh. So there are these two bodies and we need to see them distinctly and then to see the interrelationship between them, the fact that they condition each other. These two bodies, the flesh bodies and the breath bodies, are interrelated and they condition each other. This is the fact. This is the secret of nature which must be noted. In step three. Now when you hear this word body, always remember that it has the meaning of group as well. The original word the Buddha used was Gaya and this word also happens, occurs in Thai and is pronounced Gai. Both Gaya and Gai have the meaning of group. And so when we're talking about the body or bodies, we're talking about groups of things, a group of compounded, of components which have been gathered together. The word body or group or gaya does not only apply to the physical human form which we carry around, or which walks around, and we identify with it. This word gaya or body can apply to other things. For example, the word in Pali for the infantry, for the part of the army which attacks, is gaya, is another kind of gaya, and this word for body used for, also, a group of soldiers and it can be used in different ways. So, when we're in this step three, which is described by the Buddha as Sapa Kaya Bhati which means experiencing all bodies. To understand what experiencing all bodies means, we have to have the correct understanding of what we mean by the word body, or by gaya. And the body, or bodies that most specifically must be experienced in this part of the practice are the breath body and the flesh body. But the specific meaning the, the, the real point of this step is not only to be aware of these two kinds of body, but to first be aware that there are these two kinds of body, the breath body and the flesh body, and then to see that one of these bodies conditions, influences the other body. This kind of knowledge has been happening since the beginning of the practice. We've been aware of the two bodies in some way since all along. And we've also noticed the influence between the breath body and the flesh body. For instance, as the breathing becomes more long and peaceful, then the flesh body will relax and there will be less stiffness and pain. This is something that we should have become aware of in the first couple steps. But in step three here, we make this very, very clear. We study this fact very closely. We focus upon it until it is absolutely clear. And then we will definitely have experienced the truth that there is the breath body and the flesh body. And the breath body conditions, influences the flesh body. Now, when there are these two bodies, we can give a a special name to the first kind of body, that is, the breathing. We call it the Gaya-sankhāra. The word sankhāra means to condition, in this case. So, Gaya-sankhāra, sankhāra, means the body conditioner. So we give this special name to the breathing that it is the body conditioner, the breathing conditions the body. The body itself is something which is conditioned, it is the object of the conditioning. And so we have these three important aspects of the cause and effect relationship of conditioning. There is the breathing the body conditioner, the body, that which is conditioned. And there is the process of conditioning that interrelates the two of them. And as this is seen very clearly and deeply, or we can say as experienced in the mind, this is taken as an object of the mind. And the mind makes this awareness, becomes very clear of this within itself. And then we see that the flesh body is dependent upon the, the body conditioner, that is, the breathing. This is seeing, on a material level, the, the truth of anatta, not soul, not self, because in seeing this this interrelationship that there is nothing but this process of conditioning, then there is the beginning of the realization of the truth of anatta. However, this is not the, the, the understanding of this truth of anatta, is not the specific object of this step. We're just pointing out that even at this point, there begins to be some understanding of this deep universal truth. But the essential thing is to realize the interrelationship of dependence in conditioning between the body conditioner, the breathing, and the flesh body. We will take this opportunity to discuss the word sankara, sankara, a bit. This is a very common and important word in the Pali scriptures, and many people have a lot of problems with it because it has a few different meanings, very closely related meanings, but still quite different. And so we will explain these to you now, in hope that that will be of use to you. This is has to do with the vagueness of the Pali language, and there's nothing we can do about that. (laughs) This word saṅkāra can have three basic meanings. The first meaning is conditioner, conditioner, that which conditions. The second meaning is the thing which is conditioned, the conditioned thing, that which receives the act of conditioning. And the third meaning is the act or process of conditioning itself. So the first two meanings are nouns. The thing which conditions, something else, and second, that thing which is conditioned. The first meaning is the subject of the conditioning, and the second meaning is the object. And then the third meaning is the verb which describes the act of conditioning itself. So there are these three different meanings of the word sankara. And you need to be aware of all three, because in spite of these three distinct processes or things, we use the same word, saṅkhāra. So in summary, saṅkhāra means, one, the conditioner, two, that which is conditioned, and three, the act of conditioning. Now, for this word sankara, you don't have to study it in any books or in a theoretical way. That's completely unnecessary. You can study the word sankhara within this body right here. You don't have to look outside of yourself in any way to study the word sankhara. By studying the body itself, we will see that the body is a sankara, The body is something which has been conditioned. A variety of causes have led to this result, which we call the body. So in this way, we can see that the body is a saṅkhāra because it has been conditioned by various things, such as our parents or the food we eat. Then we can also see that this body conditions other things, such as thoughts, feelings, sensations, which are conditioned because of the body. Without the body, these thoughts, feelings, sensations, and whatever would not happen. So we can see that these thoughts, feelings, and sensations are also saṅkāra. In the meaning of things that are conditioned. And then the body itself is the conditioner of those things. So we can see the body in one way as that which is conditioned. And then we can also see the body as that which conditions other things. So the body is both a conditioned thing and a conditioner. These are the first two meanings of the word saṅkāra. And then as for the third meaning, by watching the body, by studying it, then we will see that there is a constant process of conditioning going on within the body. And this is the third meaning of the word saṅkāra. So please learn this the meanings of this word sankara right here in this body and then you will have a a profound understanding of this 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 truth which will be very very useful in you in helping you to understand the most profound truths about life. So use the body to study the Sankara. Now, in step three, we can completely study the saṅkhārā. And so what has just been described, these three meanings of sankara can be fully understood as they relate to physical things, by fully practicing step three of mindfulness of breathing. So, in step three, of the practice of mindfulness of breathing, we are aware of the body, the flesh body, as something which is conditioned, a conditioned thing. And then there we see the breath, as the conditioner of that flesh body. So there is the breath, the conditioner of the body, the conditioned thing, the object of that conditioning. And then we see that activity of conditioning which relates, which which ties together the conditioner and the conditioned object of the conditioning. So in step three of mindfulness of breathing, these three meanings of the word saṅkhāra can be seen completely. This will be conditioning of what we call the body, its conditioning seen on the physical level. We haven't yet seen it on the mental level. And so this is the work that must be done in the mind. The mind has this work to do, to see the conditioner, the breathing, the conditioned object, the body, and the process or activity of conditioning. So to see the three meanings of sankhara while breathing in and breathing out, this is the work which must be done within the mind. So in step three, there is the awareness of these three facts, these three facts of the three meanings of the word sankhara. As they relate to the breathing in the body, these facts are clearly seen within the mind with every in breath and every out breath. When this and this is the meaning of fully experiencing all bodies, the Buddha said that step three of this practice is fully experiencing all bodies, and this means for the mind. To be completely clear of these three truths. The, the breath is the body conditioner, the body is conditioned, and there is the process of conditioning linking the two. This is the fact that these are the facts which the mind must be clear of, must fully experience with every in-breath and every out-breath. When this can be done, when the mind can note and be clear of these three facts simultaneously while breathing in and breathing out, then step three has been fulfilled. So to summarize this, when it is clearly seen within the mind, when the mind is fully aware that one body can be controlled by another body, which means the flesh body can be controlled or directed or influenced in any way we want by the breath body. When this fact is completely clear, when the mind is absolutely certain about this, when this is being fully experienced, then we can say that step three has been successfully completed. So, at this point, the, nef- the knowledge has been developed about this interrelationship. Now is, there is also the knowledge that tells us it is possible to control the body, to direct the body, flesh body in different ways, by using the breathing. And so now we have that knowledge and there is the ability to do this. We now possess, by completing step three, we now possess the knowledge and ability to control the body in a variety of ways. Now the the point of the next step of step four is, as the Buddha said, calming the body conditioner, that is the breathing. Calming the body conditioner, the gaya-sankhāra, while breathing in, and calming the gaya-sankhāra, the body conditioner, while breathing out. This is the subject, this is the object of the practice of step four of mindfulness of breathing. Now note the specific wording of this this step, calming the body conditioner. That means calming the breath body, using a variety of techniques and methods which we have learned about already from the complete and successful practice of steps one, two, and three. We will have a variety of techniques to experiment with and use in order to calm the breathing. And so, in step four, the specific object of practice is calming the breathing, calming the body conditioner. As this is done, there will be very interesting and powerful results. First of all, By calming the breath body, as we've already been told, the flesh body will also become very calm, relaxed, and tranquil. And then, as the flesh body becomes calm and relaxed, the mind will also become very calm. This is a very interesting point, which will be perfected in step four that by calming the breathing, the body is calmed, and in addition, the mind becomes very calm. So, this is the first point to be considered in the practice of step four. Now, in the practice of step four, we have what can be called a skillful means, or maybe a technique, a, uh, excuse me, a technique. Or possibly we could call it a trick, depending on how we want to translate the word or how we want to look at it. But for doing things, there are often rather crude and coarse ways of doing something. But we can also discover very fine, subtle, and refined ways of doing things. So now what we're talking about is that we have some very refined and skillful techniques or tricks to use in calming the breathing. The object of step four is to calm the breathing, and we will do so using five very skillful and refined tricks or techniques. The first one of these is something that has been used in the previous steps, which is called following the breath. The first technique or trick is to follow the breath. The second technique which can be used is to guard the breath at one point, to choose one point along the breath's path and guard the breath at just that point. The third technique or trick is to give rise to an imaginary image. We'll talk about this a little bit later, to give rise to an imaginary image, not Something that's like something that you feel like you see it, but it's it's not caused by any external stimulus. This is the third technique to cause this image to arise. The fourth technique is to play with that image, to manipulate it, to change it in all kinds of different ways, depending on our inclinations. And then the fifth technique technique is to to select one of those possible images and fix it in a very stable and solid condition, which will allow the mind and which will allow the breath to become very, very calm and peaceful. These are the five techniques or tricks we can use. Following the breath, guarding the breath at one point. Giving rise to the mental image, playing with the mental image, and then fixing the mental image. These are five tricks which can be used in step four. The first of these tricks we don't have to discuss in great detail because you've already heard about it. This technique of following the breath or hunting the breath, chasing the breath in and out has been used in steps one, two, and three. So now here at the beginning of step four, we just perfect this hunting or following of the breath. Once this can be done perfectly, then we move on to the second trick. The second trick is to choose one point along the breath's path and to watch the breath or guard it at that point. The easiest point to use, for a variety of reasons, is the place in the nose where you most easily feel the in-breath. When you breathe in, you will feel some point in the nose, within on the inside, where the air touches the skin. It's a physical sensation. So, to do this second trick, we must identify that point. For each of us, the point will be in a different place. It def- depends on the, the, physio- the physiognomy or the shape of the nose and lip. For people who have a, a hooked nose that's bent down, they maybe will feel this point very high up in the nose. Some people, if they have a, a squat nose, may feel that point more on the upper lip. So it's going to be different for everyone. It's not important exactly where that point is, but just that you find that point somewhere in your nose or maybe even on the upper lip where you feel the breathing. If you can feel this point by breathing normally, then that's that's fine. If you can't feel it with normal breathing, then you can identify it with a few deep, a few strong breaths. Once you find this point, which should always remain in about the same place, unless the shape of your nose changes, then you guard that point. As the breath passes in and out, the mind stays right at that point and then watches the breath go in and out. But the mind no longer follows the breath. The mind has stopped following the breath and stays at this one point. Doing so is much more relaxing. And so this is a more refined trick than hunting or following the breath when the mind must follow the breath there's still a lot of movement and so after that hunting has been perfected then the mind can stay at this one point somewhere inside the nose it just stays there and in doing so the mind can become very peaceful and the breath is able to become even calmer. We can, let's back up a little bit to the very moment we began to watch the breathing. If one is observant, one will see that as soon as the mind begins to become aware of the breathing, the breath will begin to become peaceful. Just the act of the mind starting to be aware of the breath be, calms, calms the breath a bit, makes the breath a little more relaxed. So in following the breath, using this technique, the breathing begins to calm down. Then taking a, remor- a more refined trick, such as staying at this point in the nose, the breathing calms down even more. When this has been done, then it's time to use the third trick, which is even more refined than the previous two. This third trick is called giving rise to the mental image or creating a mental image. By mental image, we mean some object of the mind, which appears to be visual, but it is not seen without, with the eyes. You can close the eyes and you still see it. You can open the eyes and you still see it. It's very similar to an hallucination. But this is not something that comes out of who knows where, but is something that the mind can create by itself to use as a, use, as a trick. As a skillful means for calming the breathing. This mental image can have a variety of different shapes which depend on whatever the mind wants to create. It can look like a candle flame, for instance, or it can look like a drop of water, or a spider's web in the sunlight, or a small cloud or a puff of cotton, a wisp of smoke. It can look like the sun or the moon or different kinds of things. There are a variety of images which can arise and it will depend on what the mind wants to create. In creating this, the mind will create the image at that very same point that you have been guarding the breath. So in step two of guarding the breath at one point in the nose, then as concentration deepens at a certain point, the mind can create a mental image at that very same point. And whether the eyes are open or closed, the mind sees that image. But this is a kind of seeing that doesn't involve the eyeballs, or the optic nerve. It's a mental seeing. And this is why we call it a mental image in trying to describe it. And this, this image can then be used in step two, can be used to calm the breathing. This is step three, creating or giving rise to this mental image. Now. Once step three has been done, when this mental image or imaginary object has been created, then it is time for trick number four. Now trick number four is to change or manipulate that imaginary object in a variety of ways. Since the mind created this thing in the first place, then the mind should have the ability to change it, to manipulate it, to play with it. So in step four, the mind starts to play with this. And in doing so, it calms the breathing. For this image to change, the breath must become steadily more and more peaceful. And as the breath becomes more peaceful, the image will change. And so this is involving a relationship between the mind and the breathing. And so in this continuing the process of step four of calming the body conditioner, calming the breathing, this image is changed in different ways, in whichever way the mind feels like it. It depends on the mind's inclinations and preferences or whatever, whatever ideas occur to the mind. And then the image can be changed in different ways. And this is experimented with in order to calm the breathing more and more. So this image can be made bigger. Whatever the image is, it can be made very big, until it's as big as the sun. It can be shrunk down till it is very, very small. It can be made to float up or float down, float from one side to, or to the other. The shape can be changed. Anything which occurs to the mind can be done through, through experiment and practice. And in doing so, the breath is calmed more and more. And in fact, unless the breath is constantly for the image to change, the breath must be, become more and more calm. So this is trick number four in calming the breathing. Let's consider the process of calming a bit. Remember that in step four, the object of the practice is the calming of the body conditioners. Also, let me point out, remember, we're talking about the first four steps now, which have to do with the body. And in this fourth step, there are five techniques or tricks. So I I hope you can keep these numbers straight. So in step four, we're using these five tricks. The fourth of these tricks is manipulating the mental image. Now in the process of calming the breath, which begins with becoming aware of the breath, following it, guarding it at one point, creating the mental image, and then manipulating the mental image. All of these are things that can be done, and just by doing them, the breath automatically becomes more peaceful and calm. So doing these various techniques, learning how to do them, and practicing them, experimenting and developing these techniques or abilities, these skills, are ways that will automatically calm the breathing. So you don't have to be bending yourself out of shape, trying to calm the breath, in a crude way. Use these subtle techniques and learn how to do these various techniques, and the breath will become calm and relaxed automatically. and will become more and more refined and subtle and gentle through using these various techniques. So using the techniques, the breath automatically becomes calmed. As the breath becomes calm, the body, the flesh body, automatically be- relaxes and becomes very calm. And though we're not specifically concerned with it at this point, we'll point out that as the body relaxes and becomes calm, there is also an effect on the mind, and the mind also becomes calm more tranquil. So this is done by performing these various tricks, and then there is an automatic calming of the breath and the body. You can, while you're doing all this, you can be aware, while doing it, that the, the breath is becoming calm and the body is becoming calm, because you've basically learned about this already. And so, to be aware of it as it's happening in this part of the practice should not be difficult. The fifth trick we can call fixing the mental image. After this fourth trick of manipulating and playing with the mental image, making it do all kinds of things, including change shape and change color, now we must choose one form of or one specific mental image that is most appropriate for calming the mind. Of the variety of mental images and changes that the mind has come across, that has been able to create, we choose one of them which is relaxing and peaceful, and easy to focus upon. And then this image is concentrated upon in order for the mind to become very, very peaceful. The best kind of image for this is a very neutral type of image. Often a white sphere or a small spot of sunlight is is very good for this because these are neutral things. They don't excite a lot of feelings, emotions, or thoughts. If you're, you choose an image that will lead to a lot of thinking, then you will not have much success at calming the mind. Or if you choose one that has a very attractive color, it may be fun to look at it, but the mind will not become very relaxed. So it's very good to choose something that is very tranquil, neutral, and calming as the, as the image. Some people like to use a Buddha image. They, they imagine a picture of the Buddha. They like to concentrate on this. But this tends to lead to all kinds of thinking and emotions, which is not at all useful. So the best kind of image is something like a white a soft, white, neutral sphere, and then the mind can focus upon it and concentrate on that, that very neutral image, and then there, there won't be a tendency to get lost in thought, or there won't be a lot of emotions stirred up, or a lot of mental associations, and then the mind be, can concentrate on that image and become very, very calm and peaceful. This is the fifth trick of step four, calming the body conditioner, the breathing. So now in the fifth trick, the mind takes this one object which it has found and then selected as most appropriate for becoming calm and concentrated. The mind will take this object and focus upon it. You should be aware that it, most of the time the mind is, we could say, radiating outward. The mind is, is spreading outward all the time, like the light coming out of a light bulb. In this, now at this part of the practice, at trick number five, we need to turn all this flowing outward of the mind, inward, onto one point. We have chosen this image as something that is very easy to focus upon. And so now that flowing of the mind outward is directed completely at that image, at that one point. All of the mind's flowing outward, all of the mind's energy, is directed at this one point. In doing so we develop what is called one pointedness of mind. One pointedness of mind. When all of the mind is focused on one point or on one spot. This is done using that image. And so it must be an image that is easy to concentrate on and an image that is peaceful and not disturbing. If the image is in any way disturbing or agitating or too interesting, then the mind will not be able to direct itself and gather itself and focus itself on that one point. So in trick number five, the mind learns to turn that flowing outward all towards one point. And when this is done to its completion, the mind will become, will develop one-pointedness. The mind will have one-pointedness on that mental image to to the degree that the mind only knows that object and is aware of nothing else. There's only the awareness of the object, of that mental image, which has been chosen for this purpose. When there is this one-pointedness of mind, when the mind has turned that flow completely towards one point, so that there is no other object of the mind, so the mind is not wandering on anything else. This is one-pointedness. One-pointedness, then, When the mind has developed this one-pointedness, we can say that the mind has reached the first jhana. Jhana. This is a word that is translated in all kinds of different ways. Some people translate it as the meditation, meaning that this is the first level of perfected concentration. It's also translated as absorption, because the mind is fully absorbed into this object. I'll use the word absorption, or I'll just use the word jhana, the Pali word. So in the first jhana, which happens when there is one pointedness of mind on that image, there will be no thinking and no conceptualization taking place. However, there will be five activities of mind that will be happening within this first jhana. These five activities of mind are still relatively coarse and crude compared to the other jhanas, the second, third, fourth, and so on. But compared to the mind that most of us are used to, this is a very refined mind. But in terms of the jhanas, the first jhana is relatively coarse, because there are these five activities going on. The first activity, or what is usually called factor of jhana, the first factor of jhana is called vitaka. Vitaka is the noting of the object whatever the object may be this is the first factor the second factor is jara, which is the experiencing of the object the scrutinizing the examination of the object which is in no way conceptual or involving thinking so these are the first two factors When the mind is able to do these two things, it develops a feeling of satisfaction, which is a very pleasant feeling of being successful, at being satisfied at doing this. This is called PT. PT is the third factor. And when there is PT, there is also a fourth factor, which we call sukha, or happiness, joy, bliss. And then the fifth factor of jhana is one-pointedness, which we've already described. So when the mind become, develops one-pointedness of, when the mind has one-pointedness on that object, and at this point we probably are still using that mental image, then there will be the five factors of jhana: vitakka, noting the object, vicara experiencing the object, piti, satisfaction, sukha, joy or bliss, and ekata, ekata, ekakata, one-pointedness. These are the five factors of jhana. In this case, concentration has been perfected, but only on the first level. There are higher levels of perfection of concentration, which may seem a bit amusing to you. But at this point, there is the first jhana, the first level of the perfection of concentration. I'd like to make a few comments about this word, ekakata, which has been translated one-pointedness. Literally, The translation of this word should be when the mind has one peak or pinnacle. The Thai word is the same word that is used either for the very top of a mountain, the peak, or the the pinnacle of maybe a pyramid, the peak of a pyramid. It's also used for a growing plant the very newest part of the plant, the very highest and newest part is, is the yacht. And this is, I've been translating as point, which is the common translation. But if we understand this as a point, we may think of it, it could be any point, a point over here or over there, or some on a very low level. So we want to point out that the proper meaning of ekakata, or when the mind has one peak, one pinnacle, is that it's on a high level. The mind is gathered together from low levels up to one peak. And this is the proper meaning of ekakata. The mind is completely gathered together on one peak. And so it's something that's on a high level. So please understand this. In When there is this one peakedness <laughs> or one pinnacledness of mind, this is called the first jhana, which is a very deep level of concentration. If you can achieve this that's very good, and it can be very interesting and useful for you. Then it's possible to concentrate the mind even further into the second and third and fourth jhanas, which are called the, the form jhanas. And then there are also the even more refined levels of concentration, which are called the formless or non-material jhanas. But regarding the practice of anapanasati, those very refined levels of concentration are not necessary. We only need to have a sufficient and appropriate level of concentration for to go on in the practice of anapanasati. So regarding step four, if step four can be developed the point of one pointedness or one peakedness, very good. And you can take it even further if you wish. But what is necessary, please listen carefully, what is necessary is a sufficient level of concentration. The level of concentration that is sufficient is when There is enough concentration for these, for the piti and sukha to arise. I talked about the five factors of jhana. Before there is complete one pointedness, these factors will arise to some degree. When there is, when piti, contentedness, or satisfaction, which is a a very pleasant, exciting, energetic feeling. And then sukha, which is a more subtle, refined, happy, joyful feeling. When there are these two kinds of feelings arising, then there is sufficient concentration. When these feelings are clear enough, are strong enough for the mind to be clearly aware of them. This is a sufficient level of concentration to be able to go on to step five of mindfulness, of breathing. So please be very careful on this point. It's often confused. I've just told you what is enough. If you want to go further than that, you can. But we have just described what is sufficient concentration. So now we've been talking about step four. Many of you might be wondering or thinking that this will be very difficult to do. Let me point out, if you have been paying attention, listening carefully, then you will understand the proper way to do this practice. If you do the practice correctly, It will not be very difficult. However, if you do the practice incorrectly, then it may be very difficult. The point of these talks we have been giving is to clearly explain what needs to be done. Most of you are still at the beginning, working on step one and you need to continue doing that until you have completed step one. But that doesn't mean you don't have to pay attention to step four, because if you don't know what to do, then it's very difficult for you to do it. So we're giving as clear instructions as we can, so you will understand the proper way to do this practice. If you follow the instructions correctly, If you've been listening, then it will not be so difficult to do the practice. But we don't know if you are going to follow the instructions or not. So to be able to do this might take three days, three weeks, three months, three years, or who knows how long. Many people don't like to follow instructions. They prefer to Mix, mix everything up with their own ideas and opinions, or they like to make a hodgepodge of things they've read from books and heard from different places. That's your own choice. You can do what you wish. But if you want to make this practice as easy for yourself and as successful as possible, then we recommend you follow the instructions that we are giving here. We are doing our best to explain the proper way to do this technique correctly and in the easiest, most successful way. Whether you do it in this way is your own choice. And so whether it is difficult or easy is essentially up to you. So this is the how to calm the breathing. The breathing is calmed by developing this one-pointedness or one-peakedness of mind. Once you have developed this one-pointedness once, then you need to practice doing this. The mind needs to become very expert in doing this so the mind can become one-pointed very quickly. So once this has happened for the first time, then keep working on it, perfect this ability, so the mind can go in and out of this deep level of concentration very easy. Or to put it another way, so the breath can be calmed very quickly. So you must become very well-versed in these series of tricks, these five tricks that are used to calm the breathing. Become well-versed in them, expert, and extremely proficient in them. When you have developed this degree of expertise and proficiency, then step four will be, have been completed. The completion of step four, is the completion of the first group of steps or the first tetrad. Tetrad means a group of four. So the tetrad that is based on the gaya, the body, is completed when we become proficient in calming the breathing. So we hope that you have understood these instructions so that you will be able to follow them and meet with the highest level of success in your practice. Time is up and so we request that today's meeting end at this time. Thank you.